Okay, back to podcast. Second Corinthians chapter number two. Second Corinthians chapter two. And I enjoy uh, enjoyed this morning. The Lord is my shepherd, and I shall not want. And uh, that's the contentment that the Lord provides us with. Second Corinthians chapter number two. Let's uh, start here, and I told you before how different this book is, um, and, it, and it'll be different from from First Corinthians from for the rest of the book. This is a very short chapter, only seventeen verses. Um, but Paul immediately uh, opens up with uh, his heart and the fact that he he. He desires to not have to rebuke and reproach them again. And, you know, a preacher never wants to do that. A pastor never wants to do that. You never want to. You you want, you know, every service to be, you know, just complete encouragement and exhortation. You want to always handle things in that regard. But sometimes, you know, you, you have to deal with matters as as they are in reproach or in rebuke but paul after a after a long letter of rebuke a long letter of reproach to the corinthian church in first corinthians he opens up second corinthians one and he is determined with this with myself so basically he's made a deal with himself he's spoken with himself on this matter that I would not come again to you in heaviness. So he's not coming in reproach. He's not coming in rebuke. Um, he's he's coming with a different mindset. For if I make you sorry, who is he that maketh me glad, but the same which is made sorry by me? And I wrote this same unto you, lest when I came, I should have sorrow from them of whom I ought to rejoice, having confidence in you all, that my joy is the joy of you all. Paul said, as a pastor, I, as a preacher, as a missionary, as a uh, an elder or their father of the faith, if you please, I will find joy and, and I will rejoice in you all and my confidence in you. It's you, it's your life that maketh me glad. That's what he says in verse 3. And you know, again, that sharing the heart of a true God-called preacher. When folks whom he ministers to, folks whom he teaches or, or preaches to or, or tries to instruct, when their lives are benefited as a result, it makes him happy. It, it brings him joy. Then he says in verse 4, For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote unto you with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but you, that you might know the love which I have more abundantly unto you. Paul's saying, look, even that hard, harsh letter of 1 Corinthians, in teaching 1 Corinthians, um, I did so with a, with tears. I've done so with, with a heart broke. I did so to... Uh, 
to my, not shame, but to my, my broken heart that I would have to come to you in that regard. Verse 5. Verse 5. But if any have caused grief, he hath not grieved me, but in part, that I may not overcharge you all. I mean, that's, that's true. I love that. I love that as a preacher. So I'm, I'm kind of speaking preacher language here. But what he's saying is this. I've got one or two or three maybe that aren't doing necessarily right. And in my message or in my letter or in my uh, counsel or what I have to say to you all, I don't want let I don't want to let his situation to drift into my mind that that's my focus. That the entire time I'm focused on the rebuke, and you know you can't feed the sheep skin and wolves. So what you have to do with wolves is deal with it and teach and instruct let the chips fall where they may repent or not move on but you've got to feed the sheep as a matter of fact the command by jesus was feed my sheep now in that sometimes you have to skin the wolves so the sheep can graze and they can get fed but we are to feed the sheep so that's what paul's saying here he's like look i'm i'm not going to focus on the problem, because if I do, it's going to hurt all of you, because I'm going to address that more than I should. Sufficient to such a man, verse 6, is this punishment which was inflicted of many, so that contrarywise you ought rather to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. So now he's telling them, if he has repented, if he has... Uh, requested forgiveness, he has demonstrated a repentant heart, you should forgive him, accept him. Wherefore, verse 8, I beseech you that you confirm your love toward him. So, how do you confirm your love towards him? You forgive him. How about that? How about that, church? You forgive and you move on. This fellow's caused a lot of heartbreak in the church. He's caused a lot of issues. We don't know it for sure, but it could be the one that was committing adultery in the previous book. Whatever it is, it's a matter that's affected everyone. And look at what Paul's saying here. He's saying, forgive him, accept him, demonstrate to him the love and forgiveness that Christ is doing so. And, you know, that's... I guess that's one of the greatest lessons in the Christian life is to look at others as Christ would. And that's how you forgive. Because if anyone deserves to not forgive, it would be Christ. All right. Verse number 9. For to this end also did I write that I might know the proof of you, whether ye be obedient in all things. To whom... To whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For if I forgave anything to whom I forgave it, for your sakes forgave I it in the person of Christ. Now watch this. Lest, lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Do you see that? This subject matter of unforgiveness the subject matter of someone that has wronged 
and done wrong to the church in the past. Now, I'm talking about, I'm not talking about little things. I'm not talking about childhood, grade school, elementary things. I'm talking about someone that has committed adultery with his stepmother. I want you to see what Paul said. If he has repented, Christ has forgiven him, you must do so also. And if you don't, that's how Satan gets an advantage in the church. You, I, we must forgive like Christ, period. Now, a lot of people say, I forgive, I just can't forget. I've got news for you there. If that's how you forgive, you don't forgive like Christ. Because you remember what the Word of God says concerning our sins, our issues against Him. Their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. He didn't forget them. He chose not to remember them. Now, how, how about that? So, there's things that we may say we have forgiven, but we just can't forget. Well, the Bible says you can make a choice to not remember them because Christ had taken our sins and iniquities and chosen not to remember them. Will I remember them no more? Okay? This is good. Good practical teaching. Verse 11, lest Satan should get advantage of us. And then he says, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Devices are his ways, his plans, the way he operates. Paul said, we're not ignorant of that. Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel, the door was opened unto me of the Lord. I had no rest in my spirit because I found not Titus, my brother, but taking my leave of them, I went from thence into Macedonia. Paul's also been let down by Titus. Titus is not come. He's looking for Titus. He's waiting on Titus. So now Paul's addressing folks that have let him down. Folks that have not measured up to what they, he thought they would measure up to. Paul is addressing those that didn't do what Paul expected them to do. And he says, in, 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 tied in with, in context of Satan's devices, he says that I had no rest in my spirit because Titus, my brother, has not showed up, but nevertheless, I went thence into Macedonia. He said, whether Titus shows up or whether Titus doesn't show up, I've got to do the will of God. I'm going into Macedonia. Verse number 14. Now thanks be unto God, which always causeth us to triumph in Christ and maketh manifest the savor of his knowledge by us in every place. Now, verse 14 is a verse that has a vision, okay? Paul here sees in his mind's eye a Roman conqueror that, that is leading a battle, okay? It's a battle march to triumph after a battle. 
And Paul's declaring to be one of the Christ's captives and following his great captain is led from one place to uh, the triumph from March. And the victory is being celebrated in a different place. So the Christian enjoys a victory that's already been won by the Savior. So imagine this. Imagine we have been a captive. Imagine we have been jailed. Imagine we have been imprisoned. And it's because we've been in a battle, we've been in a fight, and we've been held as a captive. We've uh, POW, if you please. And our leader comes and he rescues us after he's won the battle. And we're going to the victory celebration that's in our home country. And along the way, we enjoy the spoils of our victor's warfare. That's the Christian journey. Christ has won the battle. We are headed home. We have been released from captivity. And we are to enjoy the victory parade on the way. That's good. That's what he says in verse 14. Now thanks be unto God which always causeth us to triumph in Christ and maketh manifest the savor of his knowledge by us in every place. Verse 15, For we unto God a sweet savor of Christ, in them that are saved and in them that perish. A sweet savor of Christ. Now I want you to think about that. We are Christ's representatives. We are Christ's disciples. We are Christ's um, teachers. We are Christ. Uh, we are Christians in this world. Okay, We represent Him. Paul said that we should be a, have a sweet savor, a sweet-smelling savor to the world and to the church as we represent Christ. We should represent the savor of Christ, the goodness of Christ, the attractiveness of Christ. And we should portray and send that aroma into the world that they might enjoy Christ also. That's what I want to be. Verse 16. Notice he says to them that are saved and them that are that perish. So both to the saved and lost, to the church and the the world, we should be a sweet savor of Christ. To the one we are the savor of death unto death, to the other the savor of life unto life, and who is sufficient for these things? For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as of God in the sight of God speak we in Christ. Uh, let's let's start chapter 3. We, we might even get some of chapter 3 done. We might finish it. Do we begin again to commend ourselves? Chapter 3, 2 Corinthians. Do we begin again to commend ourselves? Or need we, as some others, epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? And Paul's speaking here about validation um of Paul's apostleship and letters from Corinthians stating how he established the church and he is an apostle. He is a chosen apostle by God. So he's saying, do we need letters over this matter? Here's what he says about this. Ye are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read of all men. Have you ever heard the phrase, you are the only Bible that the world will ever read? There's your verse for that. So it doesn't say it in those terms, but it actually does. You have a verse for that. 
Ye are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read of all men. So you are a walking epistle, a walking gospel, a walking representative of the Lord Jesus Christ. For as much as you are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in fleshly tables of the heart. And such trust have we through Christ to Godward, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. You see that? He said, you are our epistle, not in tables of stone, but in the hearts. You are what is in your heart. Verse 6, who also... Uh, let let me yeah, and that and let's let's just go back to verse two quick. Ye are our epistle, written in our hearts, known and read of all men. And what this is, it's the day to day life of of every Christian. You're an epistle or a letter that other people read. So I want you to remember that ye are our epistle, the epistle of the of the Christian life, the epistle of God to the world. The letter from God to the world is you and your life. And so he says here, in such trust have we, verse 4, through Christ to Godward, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. Paul said, I, I really don't think a lot of myself in in my abilities to be able to do this, to be able to minister, to be able to be an epistle. I don't think much of my capabilities, but our sufficiency, the way we're able to do these things is of God, who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. That's the truth. The law shows the sinfulness of the sinner, and it condemns him. But grace brings life and salvation. But if the ministration of death, written and engraven in stones, was glorious so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away, how shall not the ministration of the Spirit be rather glorious? Paul said, you remember when they couldn't look on the face of Moses because he had been in the presence of God? Just think about somebody that has that is a living, walking letter, a living, walking epistle to the world to be the sweet Savior of God in Christ Jesus. Imagine that glory. Man, that's good. For the ministration of condemnation to be glory, much more doth the ministration of righteousness exceed in glory. For even that which was made glorious had no glory in this respect by reason of the glory that excelleth. For if that which is done away was glorious, much more that which remaineth is glorious. Seeing then that we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech. And not as Moses, which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not walk steadfastly, look to the end of that which is abolished. But their minds were blinded, for until this day remaineth the same veil, untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which the veil is done away in Christ. Thank God it is. But even unto this day, when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. Now, like verse 17, Now the Lord is that Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. 
For we all, with open face, beholding as a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image, from the glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. So, Paul makes reference to Moses here. And Moses being in the presence of God and what glory it was. And he says that we have that, but to a much greater degree. Because the law brought death, the letter killeth, but we've got the Spirit of God. So this ties in with everything I've been teaching on how are we going to be the epistle? How are we going to be the representative? How are we going to be the letter? How are we going to be a sweet-smelling savor of Christ to the world? Through the Spirit of God. Through the feeling of the Spirit of God. That's what this entire chapters of two chapters are about. Paul's not rebuking them. Paul said, I want you to represent Christ. You represent Christ through forgiveness and forgiving one another and acceptance and accepting one another. And then when you do that, you're going to bring off a sweet smell and aroma to the entire world and to the church that you have the smell of Christ. And from that point forward, through the Spirit of God, you will be able to shine forth in this world as the epistle of God. Hope you've enjoyed 2 Corinthians chapter 2, chapter 3. I love each one of you. And we'll be back to podcast going into 2 Corinthians 4 on Wednesday night.